Okay, this is the second installment of Torah at Work, a series dedicated to bringing out some of the challenges and triumphs of being Torah Jews in the general workforce. This session, the first session with attorneys, brought out some fascinating discussions about strategies for managing the work-life balance, very different approaches to how to present Torah values and halachas to non-Jews, and ethical challenges with bill padding and honesty. Uh, we got lots of great feedback, and many who reported they applied these lessons uh, to their particular fields, even though they came from the field of attorneys. So the session tonight is with, is with anesthetists, Rivka Neuberger and Ben Krohn. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, we will be bringing out different set of challenges um, that I think will be equally relevant across multiple fields and applied all over. So if you're listening to this and you don't know who, what an anesthetist is, that means you probably don't live in Atlanta. Um, I, I, when I was thinking about this, I, I uh, put together a list of no fewer than eight anesthetists in this city, in this fine community. Um, but that still doesn't mean that you know what it is. It just means that you know a few of them. So if you could just, um, Ben, if you could just describe in one or two sentences, what is an anesthetist? Sure, an anesthetist is, um someone who works together with an anesthesiologist, part of the anesthesia care team, that uh, together as a team will help uh, throughout the entire perioperative period of before the patient uh, has to have a procedure or surgery. We work together uh, to get the patient safely off to sleep. Um, and as, uh, as some people have mentioned previously, that we get, we get paid to wake you up at the end, not putting you off to sleep. Uh, but we but other people have mentioned that the <laughs> job of an anesthetist and a rabbi seem, seem very, very similar. Yes. So be careful aspect. listening to this. You might fall asleep just You're by listening to our voices. Your trouble. Yeah. But no, we, we, um, we, we do anesthesia. And anytime there is anesthesia involved for any minor procedure to a very major procedure, we are there in the operating room or the, the, the procedure suite with you the whole entire time from start to finish. Now, you are at separate hospitals. Ben, uh, you're at Emory, and uh, Rivka, you're at Grady. Nice. Is the operating procedure, is the setting basically the same? The rules are basically the same? Um, it's a little, we, we do, there's different specialty, or different uh, subspecialties of things that we do. Uh, we, at Emory, we do a lot of neurosurgery and, uh, and uh, vascular surgery, and a lot of transplants, kidney transplants, liver transplants, and Grady has their they're set. Yes, and I would say in addition to different services, different service lines that hospitals have, um, every hospital has its own culture um, and its own way of operating that differentiates itself from others and that creates for a very different environment. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. not okay. so much the nature of the procedures that you're performing, but the culture of your institution. So. Yes. Okay, that'll come out a little bit. <laughs> we do a lot of trauma at Grady um, and Burns, but there are, there's a lot of crossover also. Okay, so uh, Ben well, was born, actually, this is a fun fact, uh, now it's going to be public. Ben was born at 6.13 a.m. <laughs> uh, lived here, uh, has lived here in Atlanta for most of his life, went to the local uh, schools, uh, and went off to Israel. Uh, and then to YU, where you were pre-med, right? Uh, pre-med, a biology major, yep. Okay, and then how did you wind up uh, in, in the field that you're in? Uh, I knew some anesthetists in the community and I shadowed them and 
I was like, this looks like a great job uh, for anyone. Uh, so I, I signed up and applied to school and thank God got involved in it and I, I'm happy to be here today. Do you still have the same enthusiasm as when you started? Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, every, every day, every we, every day is a, a different. It's the same thing as far as doing anesthesia every day, but every day could be something completely new. And uh, it is there are periods of you know of lull, and you know, but there's a lot of excitement and still a lot to learn every day. So I'm ha I'm very happy today with what I do. Uh, Rivka, your path was a little different than most, I would assume. Yes. Can you tell us how you got into the field and, and when how that worked? Um, so I became uh, interested in medicine as a young mother and considered following that path to medical school, but as our children um, came and grew, I realized that would not be probably the best approach for my family and started looking for other options. Um, around that time, we moved here to Atlanta and um, I was introduced to the field of anesthesia. Um, as Emory has one of the has one of the first programs for uh, PA for anesthesia in the country, and so um, I was fortunate to be in the right place, and Hashem sort of guided me in this way, along with some helpers, and um, so I went to school when our children were young, and it's been a good choice. When you were at, you said you were at school when your children were young planning to, to enter into the field when you were able to? Um, well, when our youngest child was a year old, I started uh, completing my pre-med prerequisites for, um, that are required for entering the program. And when, um, when she was in first grade, I entered the anesthesia program, which is a full-time commitment. So it was, that was the chain of events. Very challenging. Um, sometimes felt like self-inflicted torture at the time that I was going through it. Um, but looking back, I'm very glad that I was able to do it. Do you wish you if any time you would you wish you would have started earlier? No, I mean not necessarily. Hashem sends you the right things at the right time, and so that was the right time for it to happen. And you know, you never know what things would look like if 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 they weren't the way they were meant to be. So it all worked out. <laughs> so we're going to be um, focusing on three different, um, three different areas of, uh, of challenge, difficulty. There are the practical challenges, the social challenges, and then the, the ethical or halakhic challenges. So that's the order we're, gonna, we're going to, uh, uh, we're gonna go in. So let's start with some of the practical challenges. So um, now in, we're in the Pashas of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt. And one, uh, as the Haggadah says, um, as Madrashim say, one of the things that we, uh, that we kept while we were in Mitzrayim, in addition to our names and other things, we also kept our dress. We kept our unique style of dress. So we all know that doctors are, have their unique style of dress. Um, uh, so, you know, first, first and foremost, are, they, is, are scrubs comfortable? Absolutely. It's like going to work in pajamas every day. <laughs> they're, they're very comfortable. You, just, you have to be careful because it's just an elastic waistband or a, a tie, so you can gain weight very easily without ever knowing it. And then when you try to put your suit on on Shabbos, you're like, uh-oh. 
<laughs> I need to come back. But uh. <laughs> so, so they are comfortable. Alifta, you, you chose a, particular, a peculiar style, right? A little um, bit different also. Yes, I did. Um, so I know that, um, so I chose to wear a skirt over my scrub pants. Um, and so it's scrubbed underneath. So I wear uh, full regular scrubs and then I wear a scrub skirt over my scrub pants. Um, working in the operating room, especially in the environments that I work in, as well as Ben's environment, tends to um, have the possibility for uh, lots of um, blood and other body fluids around. And so being covered is important. So I chose to you know, I, I wanted to keep myself covered with the pants, but I chose to um, wear a skirt as well. Um, whether or not that's halachically necessary, you know, everybody has their rev to ask. I chose not even to ask that question because I thought that as, um, as a Jewish person in the workplace, having um, the reminder both for myself and for everybody else um, that I had certain standards to uphold and that um, as much as I would be part of the team, there was still something that was a bit different about me. And so I decided that having that visible reminder, both for myself and for everyone around me, was something that I wanted to choose. And so I wear a skirt that is, looks like my scrubs, but it's a skirt, and I get lots of questions about it. Although I will say women tend to notice it way more quickly than men do. Sometimes I could work with uh, some of the males in the OR environment for like three months and then one day they'll say to me, is that a skirt? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say, yes, it's a skirt. Do you always wear that? Yes, you've never seen me without it. <laughs> but um, yes, it's definitely, you know, does make me look visibly a little bit different. But it also helps people remember me. So that's, so <laughs> I what's guess. So if someone asks you on the, on the way in, what is that? Why yeah. are you wearing that? What's your like one sentence answer? Um, I tell them I wear it for religious reasons, that I always wear skirts, and usually there aren't more questions after that. They're just like, I've definitely gotten the are you Muslim, you know, question, um, but um, actually the Muslim women that I work with cover their hair but wear pants, so I'm not sure why people think, I guess people think if you're doing something a little bit different, you must be Muslim, but um, nobody's really, um, ask me further than that. I just tell them it's for modesty reasons. I'm a religious Jew and mm -hmm. they're- Never got into a conversation about it. People more than that, accepted. people accept that. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I find in general, people are extremely respectful of your religious convictions. If you are true to them, people are very respectful of them, so. Okay, yeah. as, as a side point, I'll just note, you mentioned that it's a, uh, it might be a halakhic issue. I'm just gonna note that in this forum, even though I would like to, I'm not going to speak about halachic, uh, uh, I'm not going to give my halachic standpoint or speak about the halachas. Um, I am considering now, and, and if there is popular interest, I'll, I'll do it, um, uh, of, of making a separate session after all the Torah work sessions this season and just pulling out some of the interesting halachic points that have come up and discussing it from a halachic standpoint. I just wanted to make that point as there are halachic issues that will come up in this forum, and uh, we're neither promoting or condemning or condoning any of them. Uh, that's for a different uh, a different forum. Uh, so Ben, uh, have you had any uh, issues with skirts or? Um? Um, I thought about it, uh, but I, I stayed away. Uh, but I do I do wear a, a yarmulke uh, every day. However, that's not as noticeable as a skirt uh, because in the OR we 
in the actual OR, we always have our hair covered with a with a, a scrub cap of some sort to prevent infection and all that type of stuff. But I wear my kippa underneath uh, my scrub cap, and when I'm in other places where uh, where we are not required to wear the the uh, scrub caps, people see that I wear a yarmulke, and I do get questions about that. I, as I was leaving the hospital tonight, uh, I got a question. Thing. Oh, are you Jewish? I'm like, yep. And that got into a whole conversation, which is <laughs> not not related to anesthesia, but just about me being Jewish. But that, but yes, I wear that, uh, and sometimes that that leads to its own uh, conversations in the OR between between uh, people who I interact with, uh, nurses, students. Uh, as far as talking about medicine, and we also have like religious conversations as well. Mm -hmm. Anything from, from tonight's conversation, from this afternoon, that you want to pull out? Um, she just asked me uh, why. Well, at first, she's like, what, what, what are the Jewish holidays? <laughs> and I was like, uh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> we just had Hanukkah. She's like, is that like Christmas? I'm like, it's around the same time. We have eight candles. But uh, uh, Is this somebody who works for you? No, this was, a somewhat, this was like a, a, a custodial staff member. Uh, as I was walking across the bridge to the parking lot, mm -hmm. but uh, but there's many questions like that uh, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So I didn't I didn't mention earlier that, that Ben is actually a, the chief anesthetist um, at your at your hospital. Uh, I'm switching between him and you. <laughs> I'm right here. You can, right at you. Yeah. He, is, well, he is in the room, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so, uh, but speaking of scheduling. I, I guess in your position as being in charge of the schedule, as being uh, the head of the group, um, you're able to ensure that you don't have to come in on Shabbos or on Yantif. Is correct. That, is that the case? Um, that is correct. And while, once again, you could ask your local Orthodox rabbi about what is permissible to work or not work on Shabbos in the medical profession, um, in my eight-plus years of working. I have not had to work on Shabbos. I've only been the chief for a couple of years, but even before that, um, my previous chief was very understanding of my, and respectful of my religious uh, needs for uh, Yom Tovim and for Shabbos and for Friday, uh, Friday evenings, because uh, the OR is run throughout the night, and in the wintertime when Shabbos starts at five o'clock, and you need to have a lot of ORs running till five o'clock or seven o'clock or later. Um, fortunately, people have been very, my, my previous chief was very accommodating to allow me to get off at three or earlier um, and not have to be on call on Shabbos itself. Um, uh, and Rifka can speak about her experience as well, but uh, when people make accommodations for you, uh, you try to um, pull your weight in other areas and pick up the slack where other people might not want to because you've been you've been given the benefit from in this regard so we tried to I've tried to pick up extra calls on on Sundays uh, or work certain shifts that other people wouldn't want to to try to make it so no one uh, sees us and be like they never get to work on Saturday and that's not fair so we we Try to and so do people know that they're covering for you. They they know that you're religious and you're not working that day, and that they're covering for you. Uh, or more just an overall feeling. I I think people I, th I think people know that we don't work uh, on Friday nights or Saturday, and they also know that we we don't slack off in other areas and we we make it so it's fair. 
Mm-hmm. So th- I think they respect that. Mm-hmm. So you've never had to come in on Shabbos or Yom Tov? Um, no. Scheduled. No, just when I mistakenly scheduled my own self to work on <laughs> on a yuntif, and I realized, why did I request vacation that day? I could I could work that day, and that was like Shavuos or something. Uh, I realized that before Shavuos, and I got someone else to work that instead. But that that was my own fault. Uh-huh. <laughs> Rivka, have you had, ever had to come in on a Shabbos yuntif? Um, no. Um, I mean, a- as lay people, that's one of the things that we think of as doctors, you know, answering phones and running into hospitals on Shabbos or whatever. Yes, I've also um, been very fortunate. Um, I have been able to avoid that by initially when I first started working, I took the Saturday night shift every single week, so um, which was more weekend shift than anybody else was picking up. And so that was just my way of showing that I was committed to the group. And despite the fact that I preferred not to be there on Friday night or Shabbos, that I was willing to pull my weight um, for that. Um, in addition, I, I, I'm part of a small uh, cohort that does the um, anesthesia for cardiothoracic surgery. So we're our own small little group of four or five people within a big group, and there's only the five of us to cover for weekends. And um, I've had discussions with my peers multiple times about the fact that they pick, pick up my, you know, the 25 or so hours of Shabbos for me whenever it would technically be my turn. Um, and I've asked them repeatedly, do you want me to like leave the group and have somebody else you know, join so that they can you know, pull their equal weight for that particular time frame?" And they are always, they're always, no, we want you to stay in the group. So I just try to um, reciprocate by picking up any of their calls whenever they need to you know, reschedule themselves for whatever reason. And also I, I'm sure Ben um, does this as well, but we tend to pick up all the holidays that are important to them, mm-hmm. you know, um, whether it's in December time or even, you know, Thanksgiving or whatever it is. So that way they know that we're, you know, we're there at the times when they would like to not be there. So, so how, how many years did you, did you work on Matzah Shabbos? Um, probably for like eight years. Maybe wow. even more. So you had to run out right after. Right so in the, the summer, so um, yes, in the summer I had to run out kind of right after Shabbos. In the winter, there was a little more time before I had to leave. Was that so, nerve wracking, like towards the end of Shabbos itself? Um, no, I think. Well, if you can ask my family. <laughs> <laughs> my family's in the audience, actually. Um, my family's <laughs> in the audience, right? So I don't know. I'm, I'm not a good person to ask, but I think it worked out for all of us. It wasn't too terrible. Um, I don't think anybody's terribly scarred. In fact, probably to the point that actually our daughter is becoming an anesthetist also. So I guess it wasn't too horrible because otherwise she would have chose something else to do. So yeah. Ben, what are your Fridays like? Um, my Fridays that I make the schedule are pretty good. <laughs> uh, I typically work uh, seven to three on Fridays, and in the summertime, I'm able to work seven to f- seven to five, or more like six thirty to three and six thirty to five. Um, I rarely will work uh, until seven unless it's really the middle of the summer and I have that uh, ability. But uh, Fridays, um, just like any profession. It's probably easier in my profession, honestly, than other professions where the typical hours are until five. 
uh, I have the ability to get off at three, so it actually is, I think, easier on Fridays than some other professions might have as far as getting off on time. That's because of your profession showers. or because of your position? Well, the, the fact that for an eight-hour day, we start the day earlier uh -huh. than most professions, uh, and we, we get to the hospital at 6.30. Is that just the anesthetist or anybody? Three o'clock is a common medical shift to end time, mm -hmm. so yes. We, yeah, there's, you know. there's eight hour shifts, there's 10 hour shifts, 12 hour shifts. The uh, eight hour shifts usually go till three, the 10 hours till five, and 12 hour till seven. And then there's other shifts as well. But uh, it is an early morning, but that allows you to get off sometimes a little earlier as well, mm -hmm. which is good for Fridays. Yes. So that brings us to the early morning, though. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, one of the funny things you'll hear about Atlanta very often, especially certain times during the year, is that we're in the wrong time zone. Um, we're on the, the western part of the eastern time zone, and because of that, um, that creates uh, issues with, with, uh, with davening and fill-in and early morning issues. Um, so have you, have you experienced those? Every day. <laughs> um, yeah, davening is an issue. Uh, when I work, when I have my shifts that start at 6.30 uh, and go till whenever, whether it's 3, 5, or 7, uh, that does prevent a practical challenge because uh, it, when I get to work, there's not much time that I necessarily will have free. Sometimes I will have free time, but it's not guaranteed. On an average day, how much free time do you have? Well, we are given, if, if I'm in an OR, I have a morning 15 minute break. So I leave the operating room and I have to be back in 15 minutes. Back into the OR. Yeah, so I have to walk like two minutes or three minutes to wherever I need to go. Then I need to walk those three minutes back, and I have like nine minutes <laughs> to do something else. One second, so that's nine minutes, let's say, with, with travel time? Um, yeah. For the entire eight hour? Uh, well, that's the morning break, and then you have morning a lunch break, break which for us is 30 minutes. Different groups, like Grady, is how long? How long is blessed. We, we, we're the only group in town that has a luxury lunch break. It's actually a secret. I probably shouldn't even be saying it in public. But we actually get a 45-minute lunch you, break. You used to get a 45-minute lunch right, break. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we get a 30-minute lunch break and a 15-minute morning break. So, uh, and in that time, uh, you have to use the restroom, you have to do something, uh, you have to eat. Uh, so there is the, the opportunity to potentially daven at the hospital. Um, what I, but sometimes there's not uh, that opportunity. And sometimes you don't get a lunch break because sometimes you don't have free people in order to give a lunch break because it, as our job, as we mentioned before, someone's in the, in, in the operating room at all times. So- uh, I always speak to your supervisor about that. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, uh, you can't uh, leave the room, someone always has to be there. So if no one is free to get you out, you're in the room and you can't really put on talus and tefillin in the middle of, of the operating room. I'm not sure if it's sterile or- um, Everything's so, a skirt to a home. <laughs> yeah, right? Could I, could I wear yeah. a talus instead of a skirt? Uh, um, got to make sure Jacob's not coming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what I oftentimes will do is daven at home, put on talus and fill in at home. Uh, and it, it's sometimes, luckily, that's perfectly fine because talus and fill in time is early enough. Um, but a lot of times, like now, I think talus and fill in is like 6.37 or something this morning, something like that. Uh, this morning I went in later, so I was able to dive in no problem at home. But had I been working a seven to seven shift, uh, I have to be at the hospital at 6.30. 
Um, and there's no guarantee. Today was a very busy day. There were very few people to give breaks. And had I needed to dive into the hospital, I've been, I would have been very, very pressed for time. And I might have even missed it on either end. So uh, sometimes I put on fill put on fill in before I go to work around 6.15 or so, even though sometimes that is uh, before the time for filling. But with my profession, uh, if I'm able to do it at the hospital, sometimes I can. But otherwise, when the sun sets at 5.30 and you get off at 7 and you start it at 6.30, uh, you don't necessarily have – you're going to miss wow. your window on either way. Um, so is that like a constant stress? Yes, it is a constant stress. Correct. You're doing it pretty quickly, and know you have to get back. Um, and I, I sometimes do bring my. I have, many times I've brought my towels and fill in to work, and leave the OR, grab it, then I have to find a room in which to do it. Sometimes there are like offices available, but then construction happened and we lose those. And then there's the chapel which uh, also has the potential availability to do, which I've had some interesting experiences in there. Um, but uh, then you're pressed for time, and you have to put on, I mean, putting on to fill in takes a couple minutes. A minutes. <laughs> and then davening takes a few minutes, and then you have to wrap the to fill in. And so, yes, it's very stressful. Yeah, so wow. the, oftentimes my days were stressed, being like, when can I daven, when can I daven? And that was its own... Uh, problem. Do you appreciate having the luxury uh, of, of being able to dive in the regular diving um, uh, on breaks? Uh, <laughs> you mean like when I'm not working? Yeah. Uh, sometimes, but now I'm just conditioned to like a, a super quick dive. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so it's hard to have a nice, meaningful 40 minute diving when I'm used to <laughs> sure. a 10 minute diving. When you're used to a 40 minute diving, <laughs> something you have to work on always. But yeah. Um, anything to add to this section? Any other practical challenges before we move on to the social challenges? Um, practical challenges. I mean, you know, there are always, you know, kashras challenges, um, kashras slash yom tov challenges. Um, mm. you know, but I think we kind of covered the gist okay. of it. Okay, we'll see if there are questions at the end. So now let's move to the section two, social challenges. Um, before we get to challenges and, and difficulties, um, I, I heard from, from Rivka, from you in our, in our pre-recording uh, um, session, we just went over some of these basic ideas and, and it's really nice to hear them spelled out here. Um, you had mentioned that uh, in addition to the, the, so the issues that come up when dealing socially with um, uh, a multicultural environment, you also felt that there was a, a positive aspect as well. Yes, in your absolutely. Case. Yeah, so something that, um, that I did mention, as um, Rabbi Foxbender said in our pre-recording um, session, uh, was just a positive aspect that I think um, as a relatively sheltered religious Jew going out into a very multicultural, multiracial um, medical environment, which tends to be, I think, um, probably a broader uh, spectrum of people literally from all over the world than, than, than many other professions. Um, so that just um, did bring something uh, new and um, eye-opening to me. And uh, just having you know grown up and gone to school almost all of my life uh, with pretty much people that were very similar to me, um, 
Where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Denver, Colorado. So I went to school only with Jewish people <laughs> until, um, until really until graduate school. And so, and even in graduate school, uh, we had a very small class, uh, only 30 some people. And so that's a relatively small environment. And then when, when I entered the hospital environment um, and began working with people literally of every race, every religion, every nationality, um, it just opened my eyes uh, to the, um, to appreciate and to uh, sort of see that everybody really has something to offer, something to learn from, something to respect. Um, and it just was a very broadening um, experience that I appreciate. I think it was, a, it was something that helped me grow uh, as a person. So. I believe you also once attracted a Negro applicant to our local Torah Day School. Yes, that's true. Uh, one of my colleagues um, who um, is um, of a certain background, which I think shares some certain values uh, with, with, with our um, Yiddishkeit, um, family values, education values, values for children, <laughs> values for how to raise children. She asked me actually about Torah Day School, you know, in a, a very serious way, considering uh, the thought of sending her child to Torah Day School and thinking that that would actually be, you know, a good match. So, yeah, it was a very cute conversation. So that, those are some of the enriching aspects of the social interactions. Um, let, let's segue into the next session. Um, ben, how, how was bowling on Sunday? How's what? Bowling. Oh, how was bowling on Sunday? Bowling on Sunday was okay. It was good. Uh, we had a, a team-building event um, and uh, so as far, being part of the OR environment in the, in the operating room a lot of things uh, are important as far as working together as a team because there are very stressful moments at times uh, when teamwork is required and patients lives are benefit from good teamwork um, so it's very important that we get along and uh, have a good working relationship and just good relationship in general with those who we are working with. So yeah, on Sunday we had a team building uh, bowling event where some of the anesthetists and some of the residents got together and and uh, bowled to become, you know, more, to, to get to know each other outside of the operating room so that our relationship inside of the operating room can uh, be better. Who won? Um, one of the residents who got us one seventy-seven. Yeah, and I, I let him. You know, you have to make them feel. In order to in, in, to build good relationships, sometimes you have to let the other person feel good about themselves. Hopefully, he's not listening to this. <laughs> but yeah, he got a one seventy-seven. I got a one twenty. So that was, he, he won. <laughs> how often? How often do you uh, do you attend these events or do you host these events? Um, they're not not that frequently, but uh, there is there are. Throughout the year, there are uh, events, whether it's uh, at someone's house or at, at some, some big, uh, we had a casino night that was put together by the department a few months ago, which was uh, at Piedmont Park, uh, and that was fun. I would like that annually or semi-annually, um, and people get together just as far as uh, hanging out on the weekend sometimes, as far as the anesthetists themselves. Uh, because you, you do work very closely with these people and uh, and as Rick was saying a lot of these people are different backgrounds um, and uh, but you you get to 
have a lot of interesting, you get to learn a lot from them, uh, good things, uh, and they get to learn a lot from you um, as far as, there's always questions as far as kosher, as far as uh, why can't you do this on uh, <laughs> any day of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and people, people know that I'm available all the time, except, you know, I'm available 24 Six. six, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. Jessica, do you have similar things in creating? Um, we do, actually. Our group is um, very close-knit. As, um, as Ben mentioned, working in the uh, operating room environment, especially in our hospital, uh, which is a trauma hospital, we work um, in very tense uh, circumstances. Everyone has to uh, work well together, um, and so, there's a very, uh, you know, a real bonds uh, in our group. And um, I think that it's, um, I guess I'll sort of bring up something here that I wanted to mention. And that, that is that um, I feel like uh, as a religious Jew in, in really in any working environment, but for me especially in, in my particular environment, I feel like my job every day when I go to work is um, for people to look at me and reflect um, that if this is what a religious Jew is like, then they're pretty decent and we feel pretty good about them. And, you know, they feel respectful, to- respectful toward me because I am respectful uh, toward them and toward patients. And so um, part of that, I think, um, is, um, includes the way that I interact with my colleagues. So I think it's very important for me to uh, be friendly, um, to feel um, very much part of the team, for them to feel that I feel like I'm very much part of the team. But um, on the other hand, because um, there are visible differences about about me, there's my skirt, there's the fact that we keep kosher, there's the fact that Ben rushes off to Davin. So, and there's also, there are other aspects, there's this, you know, we speak differently than most people do. I think there's, you know, a little extra layer of refinement. There's language that we choose not to use. And so um, you project a certain image, you treat patients, you treat colleagues a certain way all the time and people um, look at you, respect you for that, um, but still can appreciate the friendship. So that balance is very important to me because I want to feel, I want my colleagues to feel that I'm very much part of their team but also to realize that there's just a little bit of a difference. And so, and, and Can you point to any specific works. examples of where you're able to get that across? Um, yeah, so, so we do a lot of socializing at work, and like Ben mentioned, there's definitely socializing that happens after work. We're a very party-oriented group, um, <laughs> so we have parties as often as we can. Um, and we, we are fortunate to have a large break area where everyone can break together, not like at Emory, and we tend to do a lot of socializing around uh, break times. And so any excuse for a party, there's a party. So I always make sure to bring my contribution, and I have certain standards that everybody sort of expects me to bring for the parties, and I get requested you know, to bring certain things. What's your most popular? Um, carrot cake. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but on the other hand, they know that there are certain ways that I'm not going to socialize with them. So there are certain things that I won't be invited to. If everybody's going out to the bar, they're not going to invite me to it. They'll make it Friday night so they know I can't come. <laughs> so, you know, so I, there's that. I think people are more careful with the choice of language that they use when I'm in the room. 
um, if they notice that I was there and spoke a certain way, they will apologize for their choice of language that they know I might not have appreciated. I have never said anything about it. I'll never, you know, I never comments when there's language choices that obviously I wouldn't be so comfortable with. But if you project certain standards just for yourself, then people, you know, respect you for that and and that sort of mirror that back to you. Is that is that something that uh, that has developed over time, or right when you started, you, you already noticed people uh, treated you different or acted differently around you? Um, well, I think the ling the language issue was from the beginning, <laughs> um, but I think and, and I think. I think all around, if you um, are respectful both to your patients and to your colleagues, to the surgeons you work with, if everybody understands that you're there to be an integral part of the team and that you are respectful toward them, that attitude is mirrored back to you all the time. Um, there's you know, sort of a generalization out there that surgeons have a certain way of speaking to people that they work with. In the operating room, they get frustrated, they don't speak nicely, they um, are belittling, whatever stereotypical things you might think about. I think um, my conscious decision to be part of their team and to be respectful and um, to respect those around me has earned that respect, you know, from them. And so I have never encountered any of that type of attitude from any of the surgeons that I work with. Mm -hmm. So. Ben, can you give us some, some examples of, of OR language? Uh, <laughs> I don't think you <laughs> is, it, is it really? <laughs> do you have the same experience? Is it really like a high pressure? Um, it, it can be. I mean, sometimes, yes. It, de it depends on the surgeon, depends on the room you're in, um, depends on the music that you're listening to in the operating room. Uh, <laughs> who, who chooses the music? The surgeons. Yeah, you, they, they have the choice there, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, have you ever chosen the music in the operating room? Um, sometimes, actually, I, I, I uh, turn on some relaxing uh, mm. massage music prior to induction at Wesley Woods for ECT. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> uh, there's no surgeon there. Uh, but yeah, sometimes, sometimes we help out if, if there isn't an actual request list by the surgeon. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's. So do you do you know what kind of setting is going to is going to be presented to you, by knowing what who the surgeon is? Um, yes, there is oh, one surgeon fair. who likes uh, like musical type stuff and like uh, Star Wars, like gladiator type music. So that's playing in the background while you're operating. Yes. <laughs> um, like loud. That depends de on the surgeon. <laughs> that depends. Sometimes, sometimes you have to ask them to turn the music down because you cannot hear your monitors that you're needing to hear. Right, the common <laughs> habit is to turn the volume up on your monitor so that it's so loud and gets so annoying that they turn down their music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, are you able to, to talk to each other while all this is going on? Yeah. It's background. It's background music. Mm -hmm. you know, How many people are in an OR at one time? Depends on the surgery. Between what, what are the numbers? Well, we both work in academic institutions, so there tend to be a lot more people in the OR than there would be in a private hospital. Well, than a non-academic institution. Emory I mean, is a private hospital, but in a non, 
No, um, so we have students on all levels. Um, so there are, could be, you know, typically you'll have um, the anesthesia team, which is the anesthetist that's there all the time, the anesthesiologist who will be in and out. Um, you'll have a surgeon um, and, and his assistant. Um, and in a non-academic institution, the assistant is maybe a physician's assistant, a nurse practitioner, or a first assist, which is a lower level of training. And then there's the surgical technician who hands the instruments to the surgeon. And then there's the nurse who like organizes everything in the operating room. Um, but all of those people can have students with them once you get into an academic institution. So we work with crowded. residents. It can be very crowded, absolutely. So, so you ever, are you ever put into a, a situation where you you have to like go around people or bump into people? We're not shy. We <laughs> kick people out of the way all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you let them stay there, but if you need the space, then you have to ask them to move aside. Um, yeah, but Ben, you mentioned there's some stories coming out in the news about um, you know being communicated in the OR. Um, Maybe you didn't mention that. I, I did mention uh, there was a time where, yes, uh, yes, I see where you're going. <laughs> um, yeah, there some people. Uh, will talk, this is, this is not common practice at all. And what came out in the news uh, was uh, that at some location, not at either of our hospitals or state even, someone was having a procedure done and members of the either anesthesia team or surgical team or procedure team were talking about the patient in a negative manner when they were asleep um, about their body habitus or whatever. Um, so that's and not something which is common. That is that is not common, but it does it does happen sometimes. Um, in this in this instance, in the news, the patient had their cell phone recording and heard it all, and then they sued them and rightfully so. I get that that would be a question for Josh uh, and, and, and the lawyers as far as what was <laughs> legally. Yeah. Um, but you know, sometimes people uh, as far like as far as uh, this discussion goes. Uh, we obviously try not to talk bad about our patients. We're, we're there to take care of our patients and better their lives by uh, helping them out. Um, but sometimes people do uh, say inappropriate things, whether it be language or just talking uh, badly about someone. Mm -hmm. um, so how, do you, how do you handle that? Well, fortunately, it doesn't happen that, that frequently. Um, uh, I mean, as far as the language goes, a similar stance of just not participating. Um, I only hear out of one ear, so I just go like this, and, and I pl very, plug plug my good ear, and I handy. don't hear it. <laughs> um, uh, no, it, and to me, I mean, I think it does it it does rub off a little bit on you. You try to not let it uh, affect you, but it it does. Um, and being being involved in that environment, um, being involved in any environment the, the same way day in and day out, you eventually get, uh, you can get numb to certain things, even that are bad. Um, mm -hmm. Whether that's a good or bad thing, that could be discussed, but. Um, mm -hmm. That leads us into some of the ethical challenges that we, we had mentioned. Yeah. Um, where we talked about uh, being involved. Uh, I mean, one, one of the things that, that I think you both, both mentioned is that uh, it's a challenge not to become desensitized. 
That um, is for sure. When you're in the OR day in and day out, becoming desensitized to people um, or you know, in, in, their, in their state of illness or whatever it is, is that, does that some, is that something that happens regularly? Do you feel it happening? Do you have ways in which you can combat it? Um, the, it, it definitely, the, when we, I mean, I'll speak for myself, but when you start, when you started this program as far as going to school and the first time you're in the OR and like the first time you see a beating heart in someone's chest that's open and just in the surgeon's hands or the first time you see someone's uh, being operated on, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, not grotesque. Uh, it, it's, it's awe-inspiring. It's, oh my gosh, I can't believe that we're doing this. I can't believe this surgery uh, does this. I can't believe that the drugs I'm giving as far as anesthesia have the effect that they do as amazingly as they do. Um, and, but after you do that, you do kind of like, oh, well, it's another, it's another crazy surgery. That's what I do every day. Um, and, and you can get uh, uh, numb to it, uh, which I think is, you, you, it's a problem. Uh, and sometimes you get woken up sometimes uh, when things don't go as they should um, and, and things don't go well, you realize things are not just routine and every time uh, is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think there's, and like Ben was saying, there, there are many different types of desensitization that happen. So one is the wonder and the amazingness of, of the human body that Hashem created and the, you know, and the wisdom that he allowed us to learn and know in order to take care of, of human beings. But there's a lot of other desensitization that I think we have to um, fight against pretty much all the time. And I think that um, just knowing that um, as as a Jewish person, where part of who we are is to, um, you know, sort of um, perform acts of kindness and chesed, um, and maybe that's like a piece of why we decided to do this job. But that that is something that you could easily become desensitized to as you take care of patients and you're involved in doing these things day in and day out. Um, sometimes you have difficult patients. Sometimes you're there so late, you all you could think about is just wanting to go home, like not even remembering that there's a person on the other side, you know, that you're caring for. And so just um, the um, you know the mindfulness of 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 remembering um, the that aspect of of the job that is not just a job; it's actually a job taking care of human beings that deserve respect and compassion and remembering that all the time is a challenge and I will say that like as a profession in medicine it's it is very hard to always remember that part because you're doing this you know all the time and all kinds of crazy things happen all kinds of crazy stories all kinds of crazy people and um, it's easy to lose sight of that part of the picture so is there anything you you can do or, or can mention as a tip, you know, something that you do to remind yourself when anything happens. Um, um, I think you once told me that there's sometimes there's like uh, before an, an operation, they'll take a patient uh, to the doctors first. Uh, say that one more time. I, I, I yeah. seem to recall that you told me 
um, <laughs> in one of our earlier conversations that before a procedure, yes. sometimes they'll take a patient and, and wheel the patient through to where the doctors are so that the, the doctors can get a sense that there's a person here and, and be able to identify with the patient? Um, well, uh, one, well, there is one thing I'll speak about, which I'm not sure if it's what, you're, it's what we already talked about, um, but sometimes uh, we do, uh, uh, well, there's always a timeout at the beginning of any case where we discuss what the plan for the case is. Uh, one thing we do at Emory and at Grady sometimes, are, and this can lead into another topic shortly, is uh, sometimes we do um, organ procurements. And this is a person who is uh, a brain-dead person uh, who has decided either they or their family have decided that they want to uh, donate their organs for other people to use and better their lives and in the time out uh, it's not always done but once it's happened a couple times it was actually kind of touching and got me pretty emotional and made me like remember this is like a real person here um, and they're doing a pretty you know amazing thing uh, but during the timeout, there's ac there was actually a person who I was kind of gave like a eulogy of the individual, or saying like what they did, what they what they liked in life, and uh, spoke about the person. Um, this is not routinely done for any normal surgery. You get to speak with the person beforehand and get get a, get to know them before you get put them to sleep. This person's coming down from the ICU, um, unfortunately. <clears throat> but they did do this uh, this pause at the beginning and like a moment of silence to just recognize what this individual uh, what we're, what we're doing right now mm -hmm. uh, and that was that was uh, and that's not always done for those cases but it is that that will wake you up and that will remind you some of the uh, the, the power and the amazingness of what we're what we're doing. Did that particular, did that make your participation more meaningful? Um, taking a pause beforehand? It, it, in that case, it sure did. I was like, whoa, because that was the first time I'd experienced something like that. And like, <laughs> I got a little teary-eyed. And also, wow. at, at the same time, I was like, okay, I need to focus because I need to now do my job. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, that was, it was pretty powerful. And, uh, and yeah. So did you ever have to, uh, uh, are you ever called into uh, procedures that are halakhic questionable? Yeah, but I managed to um, avoid them pretty well. <laughs> so um, we do, as, as Ben mentioned, we do a lot of organ procurements at Grady, um, being that it's a trauma hospital, we're a large stroke center, so unfortunately we have a lot of patients that do not make it through their admitting illness and um, we also do abortions in our hospital. So those are things that are, you know, have many, are fraught with halachic issues and I do my best to avoid them. So that's kind of how I deal with it. <laughs> you mean you schedule, you, you um, on something else? No, so they're not, well, yeah, I mean often I can just, skirt them without even saying anything. So I rarely even have to say something. Um, as far as abortions go, because it's such a hot topic, actually every 
uh, everyone in our group has the right to decline participating in an abortion. So people can just say, I prefer not to. Mm -hmm. And there are always those people who are perfectly happy to, so they just go ahead and do it. So that's how I've been able to avoid that. And as far as organ transplant, as far as organ harvest, um, um, I know that sounds horrible, right? We discussed yeah. how horrible that sounds, but that is organ procurement maybe sounds a little better. Um, I um, have, for the most part, been able to avoid it. The main issue is really turning off the ventilator, which stops the oxygenation of the body. And so for the few times that and I have had to participate, yeah, typically that would be something we would do. And I just, for the few times that I have had to participate in, a, in, in an organ procurement, I have been able to just have somebody else perform that task. And they, so, they turn to you and they say, it's time to turn off the vent. Yes. What, what do you do? I say, could you please do it for me? You know, find somebody in the room. Or I can speak to the anesthesiologist and just make sure that I can let them know if they're available. I mean, anybody can turn off the ventilator. It's a Has it ever switch, raised eyebrows so. when you pass it on? No, but again, I've managed to skirt the issue for almost 12 years. So, I just I just use my elbow. And turn the machine on. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and I think another thing that you mentioned, one of the last points we'll mention tonight, is that uh, sometimes it's difficult to be involved in an operation where uh, either you um, you don't think that that it's going to it's going to work. Let's put it that way, or that you feel that there is more to be done, but the rest of the room is, seems to be giving up. Uh, sure. I mean, there's a lot of times when, uh, and both of us have experienced this, especially Rifka at a trauma hospital, um, and we do a lot of vascular cases at Emory, and sometimes uh, major blood vessels get very large holes in them. And in order to keep the person alive, the surgeon has to fix that hole, but we as the anesthesia team are one of our jobs, um, other than keeping them asleep, uh, the patient asleep is to uh, transfuse blood products and fluids and make sure their blood pressure is in a good spot um, th throughout the entire case and in these these uh, bad situations where a lot of blood is needed sometimes uh, the patient is bleeding out um, and we are putting blood in but they're bleeding out faster than we can put blood in and uh, sometimes uh, things don't look like we're going to be able to fix the problem, um, and mm -hmm. blood. Don't people donate blood? It's not just a, a resource that doesn't grow on trees and comes from people that have to donate it. Um, and it's a commodity. It's a limited resource. And uh, as you can have a, another share with your local rabbi about whose blood is redder uh, and who deserves what. Um, but this blood that is going to this individual. Uh, you and other people in the room, to a certain point, will be giving the blood, and then you'll be like, how much longer are we going to uh, continue on with this because this blood could be given to someone else who it could benefit, and uh, if we give it to... It, it feels like a case of Baltashkas. Yes, yeah. there are Sometimes times it feels like wasteful, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are times when you know that there's not gonna be a way to save the person, but like, it's hard to stop trying, and then you've just given a lot of blood products that are needed other places in the hospital. So it's hard to, I mean, it's a hard call. I don't even know Who what the right call? way to make that call is. So 
I mean, it's typically a joint decision between the surgeons and the anesthesia team to say, you know, when there's just, you know, if the surgeons can't fix the problem, then there's nothing to talk about anymore. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, from their perspective. But um, as Ben was mentioning, when, you know, in, in, in a healthy person anesthetic, our job is to keep the patient asleep. But in these other types of situations, our job is really to keep the patient alive while the surgeon is addressing and fixing and correcting the issue. And um, so if we can't keep them alive anymore, that's something that we, I mean, they can keep on operating, but if the patient's not really alive anymore, then that, you know, so there's a communication, there has to be communication between the two teams as to if it's possible to keep on trying to save the person. Um, and it's very difficult and very, you know, devastating to have to say, well, we can't do anything anymore. Nobody can, you know, that's it. We, we, there's no oxygen circulating anymore. There's no, you know, or, or the surgeon saying we can't fix this hole. It's too big. It's too mm -hmm. difficult to fix. It's not possible. So that happens sometimes. But I think one of the things that you mentioned is, so there, that, that's sort of the, uh, you know, the opposite, the two polar opposites, really, of feeling like, I, I want to keep trying, want to keep trying, like you should never give up on trying to save a person, or, um, which I think is, you know, a total value, or the opposite side, when you know you can't save them, it's not possible, yet you continue to try and then are using your resources that really should be going to someone else. And we think in our country that, you know, we're very blessed we have you know, an endless supply of everything. But as Ben mentioned, blood, there is not an endless supply of blood. There's a very finite supply, especially of certain types of blood products like platelets, which most hospitals are always like guarding very, very closely. And so, um, you know, it's a real decision. So, yeah. Do you ever, um, do you ever face uh, particular um, halakhic questions on the job? Yeah, occasionally. Not too frequently, but occasionally. And when you're, when you're, when you're faced with that uh, scenario, what, what do you do? Either make a phone call or extricate myself from the scenario. <laughs> I don't, one, or the, one or the other. So sometimes you can't even do either one, and you just have to keep on doing whatever you think is best. Like, there are many times where there's no opportunity for us to connect with somebody from the outside. Like, mm -hmm. it's just not possible. Have you gotten guidelines intense. beforehand? Um, some, you know, basic guidelines, yeah. But I think, I think, um, for the most part, I've been able to, you know, stay in a pretty clear place where I mm -hmm. feel confidence. And what I'm doing. Okay, so I think we'll, we'll wrap up now and we'll take questions if there are any. Um, so I just first wanted to thank you both for your time, both in preparation and in, in this wonderful presentation. I've, I've learned a lot. Um, and thank you for what you do, uh, both in terms of the work that you do to, to help people and in terms of the Kiddush Hashem that you both obviously bring uh, to your profession. Um, there are, uh, we've learned about a lot of challenges regards to dress, Shabbos and Yantif, and relationships, and dealing with language, and procedures, um, and through all that, uh, you seem to both have um, the right guide and compass, uh, trying to follow Torah values and bring out a Kiddush Hashem, so thank you for that as well. Um, so with this, I think we'll just pause, turn to the audience, 
Are there any any questions from the audience? What a great job you did. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming. Stay tuned for the next Torah work section that's going to be on January 22nd. That's with uh, a, 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 a session about business with, uh, with Shalomis Klein and uh, Shlomo Storch. See you then.